Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Our text is chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 today. Um, I came to learn recently about um, a cover story in Time Magazine back in 2009, and uh, the headline of the story was, Is There Hope for Marriage? And um, the author of the article, a woman named Caitlin Flanagan, who um, I, I don't, don't believe is a, a Christian, not known to be a spokesperson for Christian causes, but she wrote this. She said, there is no other single force causing as much measurable hardship and human misery in this country as the collapse of marriage. Now, there are, of course, various views of marriage. I mean, even in the church, there are various views of of marriage. In some cases, I think it's possible that marriage can be um, overvalued uh, in the Christian community, in the church in in general, that sometimes is the case where the impression is given that the key to happiness is is to be married, that uh, if only you can be married, all your problems will be solved, as if this is the, the pinnacle of existence, and if you're single, sometimes I know single people feel like others kind of wonder what's wrong with them because they're not married, and that comes from an overvaluing of of marriage, uh, almost an idolatry of marriage that can sometimes happen in the church. But in the culture, there can be an undervaluing of the mar- of marriage, and I, I think that's what we see now in the church, in the culture, an undervaluing of marriage. We see less and less people getting married. We see more people living together before they're married or maybe living together and never getting married at all. And of course, a couple years ago, we've seen our Supreme Court redefine what marriage actually is. Uh, But what I want to present to you today from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, is Um, The idea that really the future of marriage and whether there is any hope for marriage does not depend on what our president or Congress or our courts do. It really depends on what happens in here. It really depends on what happens within the church. It depends on how Christians view marriage and how they value marriage. And that's really the subject of this passage here in Malachi 2. Marriage is the subject. And you recall that Malachi is a prophet, and prophets are sent to Israel. They're sent to the covenant community when the covenant community is going astray, and they're sent to confront and to challenge and to rebuke, and that's certainly what Malachi has been doing so far in this series. This is our third sermon uh, in this series on Malachi, and you might recall that Malachi is divided up into what are called six disputations. Uh, a disputation is just like a Q&A dialogue between God and the people. And so this is the third disputation, the third Q&A exchange. And the question that the people ask God comes in verse 14 where they say, why does he not? Now that's referring to verse 13 where 
Um, we're talking about uh, people who are coming to the Lord's altar, they're coming to worship, and God no longer regards the offering, no longer accepts with favor what they're offering, and so they're asking in verse 14, why not? In other words, the question is, why do you not accept our worship? Why do you not accept our worship? And the answer to that question has to do with the way marriage has been undervalued in this particular covenant community in this particular time. God is not accepting the worship of the people because of the way marriage was being practiced. And that's what this passage is about, and that's what I'm going to read to you now. So if you please stand for the reading of God's word, Malachi 2, 10 through 16. We read this. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept our offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Our Lord, we are in great need, Father, for your Holy Spirit to enlighten and instruct and encourage and lead us to truth. Spirit of God, be present as your word goes forth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's one thing that distinguishes marriage in the church from marriage as it is typically regarded outside the church in the world, and that is this concept of covenant. Covenant. And that's what's kind of driving this passage. It's a repeated phrase here in Malachi, and it's what I want to focus on today. I want us to consider marriage through the lens of covenant. And so there's just two things that I want to show you here uh, from this text. And the first one, to kind of set the table, so to speak, and get context established, has to do with the way God, first of all, relates with his people. And so what we see here is the basic way that God is bound to his people is by covenant. When we open this series a couple of weeks ago, um, I explored this a little bit, so maybe this is a little bit of review, but I think you know, covenant is a little bit of a foreign concept to a lot of us, and so I think this will be helpful. Um, the word covenant is just, for a lot of us, there's no category for it. I uh, serve at my neighborhood association. Uh, I'm actually president of our uh, Luddingwood Neighborhood Association, and one of the things that we're doing is trying to 
uh, get signatures on a document that will uphold a certain number of standards that should be observed in the neighborhood. And what we call that document is a covenant. So we're going around circulating this, trying to get people to sign on to this covenant. And so, you know, that might give us a little bit of idea of what a covenant is like, but that kind of covenant is not like a biblical covenant. A biblical covenant kind is, is its own animal. But what I want you to know, friends, is that it's, it's so central to biblical teaching. The word covenant mentioned 286 times in the Old Testament we might be able to say that the covenant is the fundamental engine that drives forward the entire biblical story. It's it's very important, and yet kind of unknown to a lot of Christians. And so what is it? I'm going to try to explain it, um, what a covenant is. And I think maybe it's helpful to just back up a little bit and ask, what, what is the basic kind of starting point for covenant? What... What, what does covenant spring out of? What kind of need is a covenant addressing? And the answer to that is this. It's that we have a God who wants to be with us. It's really just that simple. God wants to be with his people. He doesn't want to remain distant. He doesn't want to remain totally transcendent and inaccessible. He wants to be with us, but the distance between us and God, God, this holy, majestic, infinite God, the distance between him and us is so wide and so great that there'd be no way for that to happen unless God did something, unless he took the initiative to reach out to a people, and he chooses to do that through something called a covenant. So a guy named Chad Van Dixhorn says this, All human contact with God would have been fruitless. All efforts that we might expend to try to know God and have relationship with him would have ended in nothing if God had not freely decided first to come to us and set terms where we would have fellowship with him. And that's an arrangement that we call a covenant. So God takes the initiative to enter into covenant with us And the primary goal, again, is so that he can dwell with us and live with us. But a covenant in the Bible always has mutual obligations and responsibilities. There are blessings promised to obedience, and there are curses promised to disobedience. And so Leviticus 26 is a chapter where we we see this. We see a long list of all the blessings. God says, if you do this, here's all the good things I'm going to do to you do for you, but if you do these things, if you disobey, here's all the bad things that are going to happen to you. And kind of in the middle of that chapter, here's what we read. God says, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's what's often called the covenant formula, and that's repeated throughout the Old Testament over and over again. God's saying, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And then later on in chapter 26, he says, talking about the people after they had disobeyed God and failed the covenant obligations, what God says is, nonetheless, I will for their sake remember the covenant. I will remember a promise that I made, that I was going to save you and bless you. And even though you're so disobedient, I'm going to go back to my covenant and remember the commitment that I made with your forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all nations, that I might be their God. 
and that they might be my people. And so th- th- this is fundamental to um, this whole notion of covenant, a God who wants to be with people. Now, when, when the people disobey and when they don't uphold their end of the bargain, what happens is God sends prophets. And he, he says, go tell these people, go remind them of the covenant obligations and go call them to repentance. So finally, I turn you to our text. If you look at verse 10, look how um, Israel's disobedience and sin is described. Verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So Israel's waywardness, their disobedience, is described in essence as a profaning of the covenant with their fathers, that is Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises that God made to them. Israel has profaned that. They have dishonored that in their disobedience. And so here what we find is this constant tension that exists in the Old Testament. God faithful all the time. God remembering his covenant promises. God always doing what he says he'll do. And a people who very rarely do the same. God upholds his end of the bargain and we as people don't. Now, here's what's really interesting. When you look throughout the Old Testament, very often when the people do not fulfill their obligation to the covenant, what they're described as is as adulterers, sometimes as as whores. The description we find in the Bible of the people who don't fulfill their end of the bargain in a covenant is to be unfaithful or faithless, and you see that in this verse, don't you? Look at that, how the word is at least twice there in verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another? Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. It, it's, you get the picture of, you know, it's like marriage terminology, faithlessness. That's, that's the problem. And so we see this repeated connection in the Bible between God and his people and a husband and a wife. Throughout the Old Testament, these two images are, are linked. And so let me show you some examples. of it, It's really all through the Old Testament, but here's a couple of examples. Isaiah 54. God says through the prophet, another prophet, Isaiah, fear not, for you will not be ashamed, do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced, talking to his people who have disobeyed the covenant. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. God presents himself to his people as a husband. Have you ever thought of that, Christians, as God is your husband, your, your spouse? I mean, that's, that's biblical imagery. Uh, here's another example, Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, my covenant that they broke, the covenant that they always seem to fail and they can't uphold their end of the bargain, though I was their husband. I was like a husband to them, I was like a spouse, I was like a faithful spouse to them, but they broke the covenant. And then we see this whole kind of motif, this theme of covenant connection as it is related to a marriage relationship find its culmination in the gospel, right? Here's Ephesians 5, 
Paul quotes Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, that's marriage, but this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage between a husband and a wife points to Jesus loving the church, giving himself for the church, dying for the church, and being resurrected for the church's salvation. So we see this this connection here. God has bound himself to a people by way of a covenant, and yet through the Old Testament is constantly describing himself as a husband until we see Jesus coming for his bride, and we see all of this imagery now just kind of like technicolor and all the lights come on and we see what all those references in the Old Testament were really referring to. And so this is what makes marriage so special to Christians. Whether you're married or single, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking necessarily about the, the joy of marriage and, and having a, a partner and someone you love and who's committed to you for your whole life. I mean, that's a wonderful part of marriage. But there's a, there's a profound significance and meaning underlying symbolism to marriage that is presented in the Bible that makes it a precious institution to us. And so that's why, you know, when Christians oppose alternative arrangements for marriage, it's not because we're against those people. It's not because we hate anybody. It's because we're for marriage as it's presented in the Scriptures. We're for this, this meaning, this richness that is wrapped up in husband and wife, God and his people. They're connected, and it's worth it to try to preserve that. So the basic way that God is bound to his people is by covenant. And so that just leads us to the second thing that I want to show you. The basic way a husband is bound to his wife is by covenant. There's a similar connection there, a similar theme. So, you see this in verse 14. Look at verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept our, um, our, our worship? And then it goes on. It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant so marriage is a covenant and so this is what separates distinguishes biblical marriage christian marriage from other perspectives on marriage we see it as a covenant we see it as something different than the typical kinds of relationships that we might find in the world and so again i talked about this a couple of weeks ago but you know here's a very typical kind of relationship we find in the world kind of a consumerist kind of relationship that is where um, we purchase something and we hang on to it as long as we like it, and when we get tired of it, we get a new one. That's what, that's what consumers do. They enter into a, a relationship, so to speak, but there's no real obligation, and the person making the purchase is the one whose interests are most prominently in view. And so, you know, we do this all the time, right? You know, our smartphones are out of date after two or three years, so we get a new one. You know, our car has 50,000 miles on it. Well, it's getting too old, so we get a new one. Our shoes wear out, and we get a new one. And a lot of people think of marriage that way. My spouse is kind of getting old to me and kind of wearing out, and I just don't have the same feelings, and so I'm going to get a new one. A lot of people think of marriage in that way. 
That's kind of the consumeristic mentality that we see in our culture, but that's not, not a covenant. And the problem is that there's nothing binding about the consumer relationship. That there's nothing that really holds it together. It's fleeting and easily discarded. But another kind of relationship is just like a legal relationship. Um, that's a relationship that is held together by a signature on a document or a contract of, of some sort, the kind of relationship you'd enter into with a business partner or when you get a mortgage. A legal relationship is binding, so that, that's what the legal relationship has that the consumer relationship doesn't, but the problem is that it's not really personal, it's not intimate. There's really no love in a legal relationship. So a couple of weeks ago I said, when you sign a mortgage, you're not promising to love your banker that there's no intimate connection there. But it's binding, so the good thing is that it's binding, but it's, but it's impersonal. A covenant cuts through both of those. A covenant is binding because it's based on the faithfulness of God, as we've been seeing, a God who says, I'm gonna remember my covenant no matter how many times my people disappoint me. I'm committed to the promise that I made. And that's the idea that should flow into our idea of marriage, it's permanent. So it's binding, but of course it's also personal. And a marriage relationship should be one of personal, intimate, loving affection. And it's both those things, the binding nature and the loving nature of the relationship that sets a covenant apart for what it is. And so that's what we see here in this passage. The covenant is in, informing everything we're seeing about marriage. So. Finally now, we get to trying to answer the question, the question there at the top, why does God not accept our worship? And it has to do with two ways that marriage is undervalued in the community. And the first is this, there's marriage happening outside the covenant, okay? So verse 11b Look what Malachi says. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So apparently what was happening is that men in Israel were divorcing their wives and marrying women, young women likely, of pagan nations that they were marrying women who were not committed to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. That they were marrying women who were committed to, to other gods. Now, it's very important that we don't see this as, this is not a prohibition against racial intermarriage. Some people have misread this. It, it doesn't say um, that they married the daughter of a foreigner and that that's the problem, that that's not what he's saying. It's the daughter of a foreign god. And the reason why God was so concerned about that is because it was very easy for um, a, a person's heart to get turned away from the one true God to worship other gods. And it happened in Solomon's life. Do you remember? Here's 1 Kings 11 when Solomon was old. His wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God. So... That's the concern. It's not marrying someone of a different race. It's marrying someone of a different religion. And so that, that should be something, friends, that, that as a Christian that you're unwilling to do. We have another 
exhortation in this regard, 1 Corinthians 7, talking about a woman whose husband has just died. If her husband dies, she's free to marry whomever she wishes, wishes, but only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. That is, she's free to remarry, but she needs to marry another Christian. This is very serious. Look at verse 12. Look how Malachi follows this up. The one who marries the daughter of a foreign foreign god foreign god not a foreign dog but a foreign god i had a cat mishap last week and now i've got a dog mishap (laughs) this week daughter of a foreign god (laughs) here's what will happen verse 12 may the lord cut off from the tents of jacob any descendant of the man who does this and brings an offering to the lord the person who comes to worship god but he's divorced his wife and has married someone uh, of another religion. So, I mean, I think the application here is pretty clear. If you're, if, if you're a Christian and you're single and you're hoping to be married, you need to reduce the pool of candidates to only those who are Christians. And I would say, you know, not even that. I mean, you need to make sure. I mean, lots of people say they're Christians. So you, you need to talk. I mean, if you're thinking about marriage with someone, I hope you've had a conversation and, and you know what this person thinks of Jesus. Does the person you're thinking about marrying love Jesus? Does that person want to bring glory to God more than anything? Does that person settle all of his or her convictions by the Bible? Does that person have a prayer life? Does that person value and take serious the church and Sunday morning worship? I mean, the the implications for who you marry are enormous. You know, this is about a whole lot more than how you're going to spend 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. This is going to have to do with everything that drives forward your life, the way you raise your kids, the way you spend your time, the way you use your money. And if you're thinking, you know what, I'll just marry this person even though he or she is not a Christian and I'll share the gospel and hopefully they'll come around and I'll bring them to my church and they'll meet lots of Christians and and they'll become Christians, you know, missionary dating as it's sometimes called. It's a bad idea. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm sure it has happened. More often than not, it doesn't happen. Uh, There's an example of uh, Mark Twain, some of you might know him, great writer, late 1800s, died early 1900s. Mark Twain, not a Christian, but he married a a woman who was brought up in a Christian home, a a woman named Olivia Langford. And Olivia, very committed, wanted to make sure that prayer was taking place in the home and the devotions were had in their home every single day and Mark Twain would participate in those for a little while but after a while he, he just he couldn't deal with it anymore because he didn't believe it and he said you know Olivia you're making me into a hypocrite I, I don't want to do this anymore and so he stopped participating in what Olivia was doing and Olivia continued to do the devotions and prayer by herself but apparently many years went by and a crisis of some sort hit the family and Olivia or actually Mark Twain, said to Olivia, now is the time you need to turn to your faith. And Olivia said, I can't do that because I don't have any faith left. Now, whether that was due to Mark Twain's influence, I mean, I guess we don't know that. But 
You know, if a person's up on a ladder, I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier to take them down off the ladder than it is for him to bring you up on the ladder with him. <laughs> it's a lot easier to bring people down than to big, build people up, and that is something to consider if you're a person considering marriage to an unbeliever. So there's marriage outside the covenant. That's, that's a big problem here. That's why God won't accept their worship. That's why Malachi is here to confront the challenge. But there's another issue, and it's divorce happening inside the covenant. So if you look to verse 15, it's interesting here how <clears throat> Malachi seems to be recalling um, the creation order he says, did he not make them one? He's referring to the wife by covenant in verse 14. So he's got marriage in mind. Did he not make them one? Probably recalling Genesis 2.24, where husband and wife become one flesh. Um, he says, uh, what's the purpose uh, of this? What was God seeking? Verse 15, godly offspring. The command in Genesis to, um, to, to, uh, to multiply and be fruitful. And so here's Malachi bringing back the creation order and what Genesis says about marriage. And then in verse 15, near the end of verse 15, the exhortation is given. Guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be, there's that word again, faithless. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And so what, what apparently is happening here is that these, these men in Israel um, you know, were delighted to marry their wives when they were young and, and they were pretty and attractive and then years went by and they kind of lost interest in their wife. And then here's these young, pretty women from foreign nations and so their hearts went out to them and so what they, they did is they, they divorced their wives, who were getting older and weren't as appealing to them anymore, and marrying these daughters of foreign gods. And so we get to verse 16 here, and, and, and this, is, <laughs> this has been called one of, if not the most difficult verse in the entire Old Testament to translate. <laughs> so there's some, there's some grammar issues going on here that you know, are beyond my ability uh, to pronounce with much authority, but I will say this, it's very common to interpret this verse um, to mean that God is saying, I hate divorce. And so you, you may hear people, maybe you've said it yourself, God says, I hate divorce. And, and that idea comes from, from this passage. Um, but there's a problem with the, the grammar there. The, the verb is actually in a, a third-person masculine singular. Um, if you remember your, your grammar, I hate divorce is first person. But the verb is actually third person. And so that's why the ESV, if you have an ESV, it says for the man who hates and divorces. And the NIV actually translates it the same way. The man who hates. So... I, I don't think, and from the scholars and commentaries that I've read, it, the, the general consensus is that this should not be translated, I hate divorce. Now, does God hate sin? Of course. So, does he hate sinful divorce? I, I think yes, he hates that. But that's just not what this verse is saying. 
It's not saying, I hate divorce. And besides, we know that God does not hate all divorce. Now, I preached on this back in January. If you're wondering, why is he preaching on divorce again? I did just preach this in January, but you know, it comes up in the text, and so that's why we're dealing with it again. But it's clear in the New Testament that in the case of, of sexual immorality, adultery, and in the case of desertion, that there is biblical grounds for divorce in some cases. And so I, I, don't, I don't think we can say that God hates that if, it's not, if a divorce is not done in a sinful way. And if you want to go back, you can listen to that sermon. It's on our website, and I went into some detail about kind of dealing with all the various possibilities that I could think of that exist for what is a, an acceptable an acceptable divorce, and what is not. But again, I don't think that's what this is saying. The passage is saying it's the man who hates and divorces, is what the ESV says. It's the man who doesn't like his wife anymore. It's the man who used to love her and then decides he hates her. And so then he divorces so that he can marry somebody else. It's a divorce that takes place because of a loss of affection, basically. And, and we know that happens, that people do that. And that's what's being condemned here. <clears throat> and the passage goes on, and he says, the one who does that covers his garment with violence. You know, it's another one of these odd phrases. There's a lot of differences of opinion on what that means. Probably just means it's like he has blood on his hands. Um, covers his garment. I mean, you know what it's like when you have a big spot, spaghetti spot or something on your clothes, and, you know, everybody sees it because you're wearing clothes. That's what everybody looks at. And that seems to be the idea here. Covers his garments with violence. That is, he defiles himself before the covenant community and, and should be regarded as somebody with uh, that kind of reputation. That, that's, that's the meaning uh, of the passage here. So that means, you know, friends, that there's just a lot of reasons that people get divorced, get divorced that that are not legitimate. You know, people get divorced because they're not happy anymore. People get divorced because they've fallen out of love. People get divorced because they say they have peace about it. People get divorced because they've grown apart. And I would say this passage says those are, those, none of those is a proper reason for divorce. There are some proper reasons for divorce, but, but those aren't among them. And so, the passage finishes, finishes here in verse 16. What Malachi says is, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourself. Watch out, married people, that what was happening there in Israel doesn't happen to you. Watch your heart. So married people, are you praying for your marriage? Are you asking God to preserve your marriage? Maybe you think there's no way my marriage would ever, would ever fail. Well, I, I don't know. Are you asking God to preserve your marriage? What, what do you do when resentment begins to develop in your heart? If you're starting to feel resentment against your spouse, or if you're in a place right now where you've been resenting your spouse for weeks or for months, and it's just festering, you gotta do something about that. You gotta deal with that. You gotta go to the person and say, look, I am mad at you. I am so frustrated with what's going on. You gotta get it out. You gotta deal with that resentment or it'll turn into a hate that could lead you away from your spouse. Be careful about your relationships with people who are not your spouse. 
How much time are you spending? How emotionally connected are you getting to people that you're not married to? Does your spouse know how much time you're spending with this person or that person? You've got to watch those things. And lastly, I would say stay close to the covenant community where you're held accountable, where you're encouraged, and where you can receive wise counsel. So that's Malachi 2, 10 through 16. I, I want to end by just saying this, friends. If you're a divorced person or you've committed adultery, you know, it's, it's not the unforgivable sin. It's not the worst sin. And there is a gospel of abundant grace that is sufficient to cover your sin fully and completely. Jesus' shed blood is enough to forgive you of your sin. And you can go to him Repent, believe, take him as your savior. He'll gladly take you and forgive you of your sin because this Jesus is the faithful one. He's the, he, he's the one who is ultimately faithful. He's the one who secured the blessings of the covenant through his perfect obedience. He obeyed God in every way. He was the perfect covenant keeper, promise keeper, the one man who did it and upheld the obligations of the covenant, but he didn't only do that, he took upon himself the curses of the covenant too. Redeemed us by becoming a curse, hanging on a cross, and taking upon himself the penalties of covenant disobedience so that you and I can have the assurance that we'll never be cursed by God because of what Jesus has done for us. So it's, it's only appropriate that we sing now about the faithfulness of God And uh, just a wonderful verse here in in this song where we sing about pardon for sin and hope that endures, strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. And that's what the gospel provides. Let's pray. God, we um, pray that you would bless our marriages, Father. And for those who are single and hoping to be married, longing to be married, would you please Guide them and give them wisdom as they wait on your timing and maybe consider potential spouses. Uh, Make marriage strong, Father, at New Life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.